This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. Picture yourself spending four weeks with other high level entrepreneurs in the northern mountains of Thailand, October 26th to November 24th, 2017. It will be full of masterminds, workshops, advisors, like-minded entrepreneurs, and of course, some fun adventure. Currently, we are offering a special early bird discount of $400 for only 10 people. Once they're filled, they're gone. Don't wait on this one, guys. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to contact us ASAP at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now, on to today's episode. When you're small, if the customer says, we aren't happy, you tear up the invoice and you eat it and you learn a lesson from the pain. This is a quote from Tim Sanders on what he learned while working for Mark Cuban many years ago. On today's episode, we welcome the great Tim Sanders. And for those of you who don't know him, I couldn't recommend more than to listen to this show because Tim is an incredibly vibrant lifestyle entrepreneur that has had some incredible, and I emphasize the word incredible, business experience. He has worked side by side with Mark Cuban for years until Cuban sold off to Yahoo. He then worked side by side with the co-founder of Yahoo, Jerry Yang, for a number of years until Tim launched a book that was massively successful and he toured the world promoting his book in Yahoo for a year. After his book tour, Tim decided that it was time to start his own business. These days, Tim has written six books, working on his seventh, is the founder of Deeper Media and a professional speaker. On the show, we get behind the mind of Tim Sanders and let me tell you, this is a man you want to listen to. Tim shares what he learned working with Cuban and Yahoo back in the day, then starting his own journey as an entrepreneur. Tim and I talk about the difference between a true lifestyle business versus growth business, tactics on being a great connector, and leaving a good digital footprint in today's world. The value in this episode is huge. And without further ado, let's welcome Tim Sanders to the show. Welcome, Tim, to the podcast. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing great. Nice to be with you. It sounds like you're great. What makes you so great, Tim? You know, I get up every morning and I don't go online for the first 45 minutes I read I rehearse the coming day, and I, as Norman Mailer once wrote, I comb my brain. So mornings are great for me that way. It's a habit I picked up about a decade ago. What are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading a book um, called Subliminal, and it's about the unconscious mind and how advertisers, marketers, governments, and other influencers reach that subliminal mind. It's a very interesting book. It's a kind of a niche book, but... I love digging into psychology whenever possible. I like that too. What would you say is your favorite book on psychology? Hmm, good question. I would say uh, Abraham Maslow's work on being, mm. still. That's a really good one. And surprisingly, I would also tell you that the Dalai Lama's Art of Happiness, The Art of Happiness, is, is a huge book for me. It was uh, really important to my my paradigm. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us, my friend. And we want to get to know you as the entrepreneur that you are today. So if you don't mind just sharing your story, your history with us. So I'll relate it to entrepreneurism in my life. Um, my first venture was a failed venture. It was a firework stand um, <laughs> right next to the farm I lived in, Clovis, New Mexico. We were a mile outside of the city limits where selling fireworks was legal. Um, we had a church buddy who had a hookup on wholesale fireworks, so my grandmother and I decided we'd invest the $200 to build a rickety little stand. 
um, buy some fireworks and opened a shop. And um, I worked really hard that three weeks and we sold a lot of stuff and we lost money <laughs> because I did not understand the ramifications of discounting, giving away stuff to friends and getting into a firecracker price war with the professional <laughs> fireworks stand across the street. I got to say, it was such a bad experience. I, I became a contributor instead and probably for you know, a couple of decades, I worked for entrepreneurs. Um, I worked for an entrepreneur in Dallas in my late 20s, early 30s. His name was Bob May. He had a video production company that later on became Pat Summerall Productions. And he was a really good entrepreneur because he mentored his key people on what he was doing and how they could do it someday too. And he taught me cadence. So he taught me that good Mondays make good weeks, good weeks make good months, and good months in the first part of the year make good years. And he taught me not to get into the quarterly disease, he called it, of public companies, because all they do is play cram and catch up. So I'll never forget that. Hmm. And, you know, I've had my own business now for 13 years, and every day I think about this. What am I doing on Monday to make a good week? And even when I track my financial performance, I look at it that way, and I always look at it monthly, and I always track it against last year, et cetera. So that's what Bob May taught me. In 1997, um, I went to work for Mark Cuban, and um, this is when Mark had the startup in Dallas. It was first called AudioNet, and then he changed the name to Broadcast.com for the IPO. This is the one he sold for $5 billion plus to Yahoo. Yeah. And I, I was one of his first employees. I was a salesperson, and I learned a lot by working for Mark. But the most important thing I learned working for Mark is that when you're a small startup like we were, you have to have a better service philosophy than the big guys if you want to win. So his motto was make love, not war. And what he meant was find out what the customer wants and give it to them. When you're small, if the customer says, we aren't happy, you tear up the invoice and you eat it and you learn a lesson from the pain. And I'll never forget that because honestly, I'd never worked at a company that really had that philosophy. They might talk about it, but they didn't live it. I literally tore up invoices with his permission. And everybody that I talked to years later, that knew Mark when he was young, coming up as an entrepreneur, because today he's not an entrepreneur, he's an investor. Um, they would tell you that that's what made him so special, is it, it really hurt his heart when he couldn't keep his promise to a customer. And so that's what I learned from Mark. And so anyway, he sells the company to Yahoo. He decides he doesn't like the culture at Yahoo. He really fears the market's going to implode. This is like 99. Mm -hmm. And so he, he leaves. And that's when he buys the Mavericks. And I stay. Um, I'm the number three. So I go out to the Silicon Valley and then the market crashes. And I had a real taste um, for critical situations, as we like to call it. Um, and it's because of my psychology background. I don't just study it now. I've studied it for three decades. And so um, Jerry Yang uh, gave me a title called Chief Solutions Officer. And it was based on the character The Wolf in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. And so in 2001 and 2 and 3 and 4, I traveled probably 250, 300 days a year. And all I did is get on planes and go deal with big problems. And it really taught me a lot you know, about crisis management and emotional intelligence and those type of things. So while I was CSO at Yahoo, I wrote my first book. And this is really where my entrepreneurial journey started. Um, 
A literary agent in Dallas saw me giving a little speech when I was still working for Cuban about the future of the internet. And it was like to a handful of real estate agents. Her name was Jan Miller. And she's really famous for discovering authors. She discovered uh, Tony Robbins and Dr. Stephen Covey and Dr. Phil McGraw and Deepak Chopra and a bunch of other people. And so she comes up to me after the talk and she says, Dalink, you have a book inside you. And so we worked on that idea for a few months, and then I went to Yahoo, and I turned that idea into a training program. And the training program was called Love is the Killer App. And it was a really basic idea. Um, if you want to be successful, make your customers successful and trust them to pay forward. There, there's a lot in that sentence, by the way. Yeah. And um, anyway, so um, we go to New York for an auction bid with publishers, and I sign with Random House. And on Valentine's Day, 2002, the book comes out. And the week the book came out, um, and this was a really good stroke of good luck for me, dude. Fast Company put me on the cover. Nice. Holding this huge pink heart. And the cover said, Love is the Killer App. And it was a 7,000-word excerpt. And I'm going to have a link to that on the page I've created for your listeners. But anyway, I go to work the next Monday. And my voicemail has 21 messages on it. 21 from talent agencies, speaker bureaus, those kind of people that pick speakers for conferences. Mm -hmm. And it was like one after another. Hewlett Packard wants you to come to Monaco and speak at their users conference. You know, next message, SAP wants you to come to Germany and speak at their sales conference. And so I wrote them all down. I had a job. That's kind of hard to go do those things. <laughs> and so I go up to Jerry Yang with this, this legal pad full of all this, these leads, so to speak. And I say, what do I do with this? And he kind of looks at it. And he was very familiar with the book at the time. And we were good friends. And he goes, well, how many vacation days do you have? And I said, well, I've never taken one like in you know, all the years since I worked for Cuban and here. He says, so we'll burn vacation days, be a good boy on the road, and you know, represent our brand with love and compassion because we really needed it at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I went out and I started to do those gigs. And at some point by a year later or so, I ran out of vacation days. Um, and that's when I really hit a crossroads. And by 2004, I knew I was going to leave. And a year later, I was gone uh, to build my own business based on creating live, written, and recorded content. And that's really where I'm at today, Chris. Um, I have a company called Deeper Media. Mm -hmm. We produce content, whether I'm speaking uh, live on the lecture circuit or producing video content or writing more books. And we also have um, research capabilities, whether it's data-based, survey-based research, or interview-based research, like the kind of conversation we're having right now. And I made a conscious decision that it was going to be a lifestyle business. And we can talk more about that later. It's not gonna be a growth business. So I don't have aspirations to double, triple, or increase this business at all. In fact, um, because of a failed startup, when I accidentally got back into that growth mindset in 2012, I now have the philosophy of zero employees. Are you enjoying today's episode? I hope so. We're working hard to pick the minds of higher level entrepreneurs to bring you some applicable tactics for your business. October 26th through November 24th, we will have our most impactful event ever. Four weeks in the northern mountains of Thailand with other successful entrepreneurs that have six and seven figures in annual revenue in their businesses. The experience includes private accommodations, workshops, masterminds, advisors, high speed Wi-Fi at a beautiful resort complex. And for our listeners, we have a special $400 early bird discount for only 10 people. Once they're filled, they're gone. So if you're ready to seriously take your business to the next level, contact us at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now back to the show. 
So what I really spend my time and effort on is being very good at managing contractor partners. And I have 12. And they cover off all the major functions from finance to production to operations to distribution to marketing to publicity to social, et cetera. And I spend a whole lot of my time as an entrepreneur bringing out the best in them and being the best customer they have because that allows me as a zero employee corporation to be very agile. And it also means that my phone doesn't ring 500 times a day because between you and I, I don't want, I don't want Gary V lifestyle where yeah. I'm always putting out fires. I want white space on my calendar so I can come up with big ideas. So anyway, that that's my story. I've written five books at this point. I'm just getting cracking on book number six. So very nice. So that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it, Tim. I want to ask you, and I think this will ring true with our listeners because we do have a lot of lifestyle entrepreneurs, location independent entrepreneurs that listen to our show. And and I want to ask you a couple things. You mentioned running a lifestyle business and not a Mm -hmm. growth business. How do you balance that? So I know it's 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 a surprising choice, right? Because I, I work for Cuban, the biggest IPO in history. You would think that well, I would want to work for those kind of companies. Yeah, right? and, and what we find, I think, uh, with other lifestyle entrepreneurs, I think the challenge is is finding a balance of that because a lot of lifestyle entrepreneurs are in their twenties, thirties, and forties. I would say. And mm-hmm. they have a lot of ambition, and they do want to grow and make money and and help people. How do you work that balance in? Because the money is the oxygen of the business, uh, but at the same time, you don't want to focus too much energy on that because you want to enjoy the fruits of your labor and have a lifestyle business. So, so let's start with defining the difference between. Again, there's no. By the way, there's no standard definition for any of this stuff. It's True. just like whatever works for you, right? Yeah. So. Uh, to, to me, a lifestyle business uh, is uh, basically uh, that entrepreneur would rather work on his or her work than somebody else's work. Okay. And to have a successful lifestyle business, you've got to produce enough revenue to support your lifestyle with at least 20% left over for retirement or R&D or both. Mm-hmm. That's it. So I figure out, and, and by the way, I've run consistently more like in the 40, 45% leftover range. So I have my, I, I have all my bills. And then after we pay that, we're a, 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 C, a C corporation, we're a flow through. I don't like, a, I don't like LLCs for a lot of reasons. So we're a flow through. So we always have something in the neighborhood of 30, 40%, especially once I escaped California, the PNL got better here in Las Vegas for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a lifestyle business, you know, it's really important to control your expenses, right? So when we came to Vegas, we bought our house cash. The only debt I have in the world is a lease car payment, which is a write-off. That's literally the only debt I have in the world. That's important. So I shrunk my P&L down. So when I look at the annual income for deeper media, there's a lot left over where I can basically take half of everything that's left over and put that into what I call double-down marketing or next product development, right? Because marketing's in 10% of the P&L, so it's already in the number. Um, and then the other half of what's left over goes in st- into strategic retirement. Because what I have discovered is that over a 20-year career as a lifestyle business, my payoff for retirement will be 500% bigger than the average Silicon Valley startup CEO's payout when he or she finally sells their company. Let, nice. let, let that soak in. So, so you know, there's a, there's a greed factor 
um, that I think is promoted. <laughs> my shows, my shows like HBO Silicon Valley or even Shark Tank, that makes us all want to create these hundred million dollar businesses. But for me, my definition of entrepreneur is I, I, I'd rather work on my stuff than somebody else's stuff, and that's why I, I'm on my own. However, that doesn't mean that a growth business isn't bad. I'm on the advisory board right now for five different growth businesses. I've been on boards for about 13, and many of them were bought for a lot of money. So I get why those entrepreneurs go in that direction. Um, a growth business um, seeks to grow the tree to the sun. It really starts right. out with that ambition, and sometimes it gets tempered along the way. But a growth business is successful because it creates opportunities for other people and and attempts to put a dent in the universe. And, and those are really noble aspirations. That entrepreneur is an entrepreneur. Here's a cool definition. Because he or she has a vision that they cannot complete on their own. And that's what makes them entrepreneurial. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so I tried a growth business. I had a startup in Pasadena called NetMinds. We raised the money. We lost the money. We couldn't raise more money because we were in the wrong addressable market. We had five FTEs. I went through all that that pain and suffering of working with co-founders, and I just realized, my God, I'm not that kind of entrepreneur. I'm the kind of guy that wants to work on my own stuff. But But, you know, Chris, here's the deal. If your lifestyle business is going to be successful, you got to have two things. You got to have a springboard. And what I mean by that is some exogenic shock has to happen in your business life that produces the kind of windfall that gives you the confidence to cut the cord. Okay. okay. And, and for me, that springboard was the speaking opportunities that came from publishing the first book. Um, because, you know, just to be transparent here, uh, when I, when I got all those messages, dude, they were like offering in the neighborhood of fifteen twenty thousand $20,000 cash to go give a speech. I'm a nobody mm -hmm. that I, I'd been in a band for years where as, we'd make like $200 between the five, <laughs> right? So it's like that, that'll just change you, but it's a springboard. It's something that gives you a foundation to make the great leap. And then the second thing you need to have a successful lifestyle business is a stronghold. Okay. And what I mean by that is you need to have a reservoir of both expertise and experts in your network that you can rely on because it's going to be tough sledding in the beginning. There's going to be ups and downs in the beginning. Uh, you're going to have unforeseen expenses because there's no magic formula for how you divvy up sales and marketing and other operational costs. And your stronghold will take care of you. And they will also help you sustain your business over a very long period of time because the reality is in the beginning when you're new, you, you get a lot of love um, from the market because you're new, but mm -hmm. you know you have to keep reinventing yourself. And so that stronghold's really critical to your success. That makes sense. Tim, I was watching one of your Facebook videos and this quote, I think you, you were quoting out of a book and I forget the name of the book, but I think you'll recognize the quote. It was love is a selfless promotion of the growth of the other. Yeah. And I'm curious if you could elaborate on that because you said it was a pivotal quote that crossed your path when you read it. And yeah. And so um, I'm wondering if you could dive deeper about that quote and how it's affected your life. Sure. So like, like a lot of people, I've always been conflicted. I wanted to be successful on the one hand, but I didn't want to be that evil business guy on the other who took advantage of people, right? I didn't want to be that Michael Douglas in Wall Street. But 
I'd studied business and I'd worked for business people and I knew that, you know, we can't live in a perfect world and you can't look at everything through rose colored glasses. So I was conflicted on how to pull this deal off. And 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 I always talked about, you know, giving the customers the love and, you know, the Mark Cuban reference. So I started to read a lot of books about love, not just the psychology of love, but the philosophy of love. And I, and I finally found a definition I could really live with. And it was a definition by Milton Meyerhoff in his book on caring. It's a classic book on charity. And he said that real love is the selfless promotion of the growth of the other. And to that extent, the happiness, the success, the well-being of the other. So, Chris, when you think about, you know, how you would feel about your parents or how you would feel about your best friend or your children, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so what I realized is that the reason I'm conflicted is because that's not the right definition for what I call biz love, okay. the, love in, the love in our entrepreneurial professional life. So I crafted my own definition, and that was the basis of the first book. Um, love in the professional context is your intelligent sharing of your intangibles, your knowledge, your network, and your compassion to promote success in other people. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of words there, but basically the concept is if you are intelligent about how you share your intangible value with the desire to promote success in other people, and you don't expect anything in return, they will overpay you by a lot. And you will build the very ecosystem you need to be successful by doing this. And it's really hard because of the ego to do this. And I crafted a saying, nice, smart people succeed, emphasis on the word smart. (laughs) Okay. Right? So anyway, once I kind of crafted what it meant for us to be able to bring love every today, work every day and be successful, I found my stronghold. And it was a huge audience of people, a lot of them young entrepreneurs just coming up that said, yes. This is exactly what I've always been trying to figure out about the business world. And I said, you know, the secret, really, the secret to all of this is as you provide mentorship or you provide networking opportunities, because I have a very bizarre, bizarre, I have a very unique philosophy about the difference between being a networker and a connector. Mm-hmm. If you do all these things, you have to be free from expecting anything in return, because really, Reciprocity is not what makes the world go round, all right? Influence is what makes the world go round. If I mentor someone and then she says, I so appreciate what you did to help me figure this out, what can I do for you? I say nothing. I don't want you to pay me for this. I enjoy this way too much. I want you to find a mentee in your future. And she's gonna look like a hero, like I look at you. She's going to be going too fast, and you're going to give her advice so she can make the next step. That's what I want you to do. You don't even need to tell me you did it. If we really operate under a pay-forward philosophy, we create a better culture to do business in. And I learned that's really hard because oftentimes everything we do is pro quo. We really expect someone, if we uh, make a networking introduction, for them to cut us in an opportunity or introduce us in the future. But that destroys the goodwill. Hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever done a hookup for you, Chris, and then y- y- it was successful, and they kind of came around going, well, it must be nice, and it just kind of hurts your feelings. Yeah. Because, you know, the entrepreneur's journey is not about getting introduced to the right person. It's about execution. So, so we have to have a humility um, as we help other people as an entrepreneur, and if we do that, we build an outstanding brand in the market, and a lot of good things happen out of the blue. I agree. Tim, I, I want to ask you maybe some 
some tactics that you use to connect with people. And maybe it's helping other people connect with the people they want to or you connecting with to grow your network or tribe. So I, I like your philosophy that you use, and I think it's very intelligent. And I'm, I'm curious because there are a lot of entrepreneurs that do want to grow their network and not seem like the networker but the connector. I, I'm mm-hmm. curious if you can give some tips about becoming a better connector. Yeah, absolutely. So you need to go into every social situation, whether you're traveling on a plane or whether you're at a you know networking event or whatever. I want you to go with the philosophy that you are there to connect at least two people that should meet, and that is your goal. It's really hard. Again, this is all counterintuitive, really, because you think, no, I'm there for me to get connected. But it just doesn't work that way, especially if you're a young entrepreneur that's not business famous. Uh, I'm telling you that they're not interested until they get to know you a little bit, right? right. So so it's better for you to go to a party. And I know you're going to be like, oh, hi, Chris, what do you do? Well, I'm Entrepreneur House. What do you do? I'm Deeper Media. That's a good first question. Can't avoid it. But you're not screening them to see if they've got something that they can give to you. Because oftentimes when people have those conversations, that's what they're really doing, right? They're kind of digging and they go, well, Chris, uh, so it's a podcast. So how many downloads do you have a week? Hmm, and where are you right? And all, what they're vetting you for is now they're going to dangle the carrot, right? Yeah. I'm going to offer. So, so that's a bad strategy. Super connectors don't do that. The super connector asks you, hey, so Chris, what are you working on these days you're excited about? I mean, tell me about your wow project. And then shut up. And let them tell you. And then ask them the kind of questions that help them figure out what obstacles they're trying to overcome. Because that's what's going to happen if you let them talk enough. And as they reveal to you some of the obstacles they're working through right now, they may reveal to you opportunities for you to introduce them to people or resources. Okay, And when that happens, you become a super connector. So I always really focus the conversation on what do you need to make that wow project work. So then we have that conversation. I might say, wow, I know this guy. And he has this startup that does all this automation that's really going to solve that scale problem for you. I'd like to introduce you to him. I want to tell you his name. And I usually always, it's like a radio ad. I tell the person three times the name. I'm going to introduce you. I'm going to introduce (laughs) you to Chris Reynolds. Remember that name. And so then we exchange business cards. I still do that. And then when I step away, um, I'll pull a pen out of my pocket and I write down on the back of the card who that person should meet. Mm-hmm. And then I'm being very tactical here, bud. And then I take the corner, the right top corner of the business card, and I bend it back, okay? Because you get a stack of business cards at all these meetings, right? Right. But if I see a business card where the right corner is tucked back, then I know I made a promise to network that person, all right? And I make it a goal to make the connection in less than three days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'd be great if I could make that connection in person over a lunch. doesn't always scale. It'd be nice if we could do a three-way video. That's great because you see each other. Sometimes, though, you have to do it by email. And by the way, that's a last resort, but sometimes you do it by email. And I would tell you the secret to being a connector is writing a, the right email. Because remember, you are selling two people on giving each other their attention, which is a scarce resource. Mm. So when you write these emails, you just don't throw things over the wall like, you know, hey, Chris, meet Bob. Go. Because they're not going to do anything (laughs) about it, right? Right. You need to write a smart email that says, 
Dear Chris, I want you to meet Bob Harris, and he's hyperlinked to his LinkedIn profile, okay? Mm -hmm. And he offers this kind of solution, which I know is exactly what you need, period. Then the next paragraph says, hey, Bob, I want you to meet Chris, hyperlinked to your LinkedIn profile. This is his business, hyperlinked to your business. At least one or two sentences on why I think it's a credible good business to work with, and this is his desire to talk to you. And then I say, you know, you two should get together over the course of the next day. And then I put it on my calendar to call who I consider the top influencer of those two, the person who has leverage, and I'm going to call that person or text that person the next day and say, did you talk to Chris? And I'm going to hassle that person if I think it's a good (laughs) match, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my networking tactic, and um, I have a goal. And I've lived by this goal since 2002. Every week I introduce three people that should meet and I get out of the way. And it has to be done Friday by three. Wow, that's and cool. At fir- and at first it was hard. And now I've done five so far this week. It's been easy because, you know, really these opportunities come along. We just don't execute very well on them, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I like to create networking like dinners, lunches, especially when I travel. You know, we call them meetups now in the new world. But I love to create a collection of people that look like they should meet either based on pursuit or personality. Mm-hmm. And and I really, you know, try to, to act more as a, a conductor of an orchestra at those. And I know that sometimes people are always kind of puzzled, like, well, are you here to sell the next book? Are you here to do research for us for you? And the answer is no. You know, I'm here because I got a speech tomorrow. I got some time to burn. And I think you should meet that person and stay focused, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and I believe that if you do that, more people will bring you into more network. That has been my experience. I, I can't tell you how many times I've made one of these introductions, hassled the, the leverage person to respond, and then they go off and do something. Um, I can't tell you how many times they reciprocate that to me, even though I don't expect it. Yeah. It's, it, it, my network is, has exploded because I've been able to give trust where other people, they, they're very cynical. And they, they, they basically, like I say, it's carrot and stick, and, and that's a, a bad approach. Here's the other thing I tell you about you know, getting out there and building your network. You have to have a good digital footprint these days. I mean, you of all people know that. You've invested into more than 200 you know, episodes, right? Yeah. So whatever, whatever the best avenue for you is, whether it's a podcast, whether it's social media, whether it is a blog, uh, whatever it is, um, you have to have a strong digital footprint that expresses very clearly your perspective and your best practices. Okay, because the reason the reason people like you is your perspective. The people the reason people respect you is the best practices that that work for them too. So no matter what you do, go out there and give away some expertise and knowledge, because at the end of the day they'll realize they can't do it as good as you, and they'll come back to you and they'll hire you. Um, and that's really important. So, you know, I've thought a lot about my digital footprint over the course of the last few years, and, and I continue to tweak it. And you got to measure the results of, of, you know, how everything works towards the funnel. So, you know, I've kind of figured out how creating video content and buying Facebook ads against it work against the funnel of creating either training or speaking opportunities. And I kind of know down to the dollar what it costs to buy a lead. And I think that's also a very important back end of any effort you put into digital footprint, especially if your entrepreneurial business isn't digital media. Tim, I have to ask you that question that you asked or that you recommended other people asking others. What is your most exciting project or wow project right now? Um, 
I, I would tell you it is uh, – a, 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 I'm just getting started on a new book, and I'm really excited about it because after 16 years, I'm finally, I'm finally getting around to writing the sequel to Love is the Killer App, and I'm super excited about it, Chris. I really am. I'm writing a book about where great work comes from. Mm-hmm. Like, like when you go to a restaurant and they bring you out that, that dish, and it is so fantastically made, so perfectly plated – you just look at that dish and you go, man, there's love in here. Have you ever had that experience? Oh, yeah. Right? Um, and you just feel the love. Uh, I'm writing a book about where that comes from because the reality is every person doesn't do that just by happenstance. They do it based on one of two reasons, pride or service. And it's always because of something that happened when they were young or coming up that instilled those triggers. And people that are very consistent at serving the love in their life, whatever they're doing, um, they're still connected with those stories. Mm-hmm. So so what's interesting to me in the world of coaching and managing and leadership is for the last 10 years, we've been telling people, you know, find your strengths, right? Find your strengths. And I'm going to write a book about how to find your stories. The ones that inspired you to have pride in your work. I like it. The ones that inspired you to serve other people and make a difference. And so I'm so excited because I'm going to interview so many people for this book. I'm going to travel the world to really put together these love stories. And I hope I'm going to empower a future generation to produce outstanding and remarkable work with love. Tim, when can we expect that book to be out? If all things go well, end of 2018. Publishing cycle is kind of long. But if all things go well, fall of 18. But um, – you um, on the page that I've set up for your listeners, there'll be a place where you can sign up uh, for a newsletter that I put out every month, and I'll be dribbling out advanced content from that book over the course uh, of the next year and a half or so. Excellent, Tim. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners about Deeper Media, other books that you have, or just anything in general? Well, one last thing I would say is that if you are in B2B as an entrepreneur, you you realize how complex it is to make a sale, especially a quality sale. My most recent book is called Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges, and it's about collaboration. And for smaller businesses, your ability to collaborate with your competitors, your suppliers, and your partners gives you an advantage over big companies. Because when you come up with a super innovative idea in a deal storming meeting, you don't have to go through 15 layers of bureaucracy to put it into action. So it's a book about how to really perfect the art of brainstorming to solve sales and marketing challenges. So there'll be a link on the page I've set up where you can download like an entire 30-page ebook. It's called Sales Genius as a Team Sport, which is from the larger book deal storming. So, so that's something that might be interested, interesting to some of your listeners. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Tim. We are going to sign off there. Tim, if the listeners want to reach out and learn more about you, where is the best place they could do that at? I've set up a special page here, Chris. It is <laughs> Tim, it is timsanders.com front slash house, timsanders.com front slash house. And we will share that link in the show notes so we can learn more about Tim. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I really appreciate you taking your time and sharing your tips and your tricks and all your wisdom with the listeners. Thank you. And listeners, we're going to sign off there. Thank you guys so much for joining us once again on the podcast. And we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody.
The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day to day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for attendees, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. This year, our main event will be held in Chiang Mai, Thailand. It is four weeks from October 26th to November 24th and held for six and seven figure entrepreneurs only. It will be full of workshops, masterminds, advisors, co-working, and fun weekend social events. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. This event will fill up fast. For those of you that are interested and have some questions, be sure to contact us through theentrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact. We will respond as soon as possible. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.